What is $4.5 million in fines? That is what Alan Tower, president of NewMed, will pay for selling cardiac stents and catheters for use in children without FDA approval. The stents are safe, effective, and life-saving. Is this fair? Should children be left to their own devices? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To learn more, stay tuned to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, your host, and with me today is Dr. John Abramson. Dr. Abramson is the Weston M. Kelsey Professor and Chair of the Department of Pediatrics at Wake Forest University School of Medicine and the Physician-in-Chief of Brenner Children's Hospital in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. From 1999 to 2003, Dr. Abramson was Chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Committee on Infectious Diseases. He serves on the Task Force on Immunizations and the Committee on Federal Government Affairs. He was most recently chair of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, also known as ASIP. Welcome, Dr. Abramson. It's great to have you joining us at the Clinician's Roundtable. Well, I'm delighted to be here. It's been said that children are just small adults. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Why was the Pediatric Medical Device Safety and Improvement Act of 2007 necessary? Well, I think that there's no better demonstration of where children aren't as little adults because adults, they have a device that's going to be left in for a long time. They don't grow in size. Their metabolic needs don't change. And that device, if it's made right, can last for a long time. The same device in a child, that child may outgrow, for instance, a stent or a valve in the heart. As the heart gets bigger, that valve may no longer function because of the growing size of the heart. Just the metabolic needs of the child changes, and it's a great demonstration of where children aren't just little adults. Was there a tipping point leading to this act? Were there harms that were noted, adverse events? What stimulated the government to act in 2007? There was a lot of concern from surgeons, from cardiologists, et cetera, that they were having to what I would call jerry-rig. And by that, I mean they would take an adult device and try to modify it in a way that it would work for children. And that was the impetus for the American Academy of Pediatrics really became concerned hearing all these, you know, cases of, of jerry-rigged devices. And in other times where devices weren't even available for children that were available for adults that made the Academy start looking into this more. Well, if they were jerry-rigged but they worked, was there a problem with that or is it just they couldn't be mass-produced so they'd be readily available? Well, first of all, a lot of times when they were jerry-rigged, they didn't work or they didn't work optimally. And the second problem with that is if a doctor in one medical center jerry-rigged it one way, it doesn't necessarily mean that's how all the other doctors jerry-rigged it. So that you couldn't even tell what was working and wasn't working. And I guess you couldn't do any kind of long-term follow-up where somebody knows which technique or device to apply because they were all different. Exactly right. So the act is now in effect? Yeah, Congress in September actually passed by a huge majority, both in the House and the Senate, several bills, but one of them pertaining to Pediatric Medical Devices Safety and Improvement Act. And it really did some major things. It increased the tracking of pediatric devices approvals so that not only would the FDA know when they went in, but also had now increased authority to follow these devices. And before it was only for three years. Now it's for longer when that's appropriate. It also incentivized device development and modifying the humanitarian device exemption. By that, I mean that there are some illnesses that are pretty rare in children. And up until then, a manufacturer, if it was a device that was under 4,000 children who had that problem, 
they were allowed to make the device with less FDA oversight, but actually couldn't make a profit on it. And so you can imagine there wasn't much incentive for them to make the device. Certainly that, not in this country. <laughs> the third thing it did was it established a nonprofit consortia to stimulate device development. A lot of times physicians have great ideas about what they need in a device, but they don't have the engineering background and the business background to do it. This is creating two consortia in the United States to help with that, and the Congress put some money behind that. Are there any products up and coming that you're aware of as well, a result again, of this? Well, this only started in September of this year, so nothing yet has come out of that consortium. In fact, they haven't yet been formally formed and funded. The last one is they enhanced the post-marketing surveillance so that when these devices are put into children, we can follow them, or the FDA will follow them much more stringently than they had in the past. Also this past month, the FDA, or actually it was the Inspector General, issued a rather critical report on the subject of FDA oversight. Have you got a chance to see that? Well, actually, even before that, the Congress asked the Institute of Medicine, which is a very prestigious medical organization, to look at the safety of pediatric devices. And the Institute of Medicine gave, or after a lot of fact-finding and a lot of testimony, gave a report to Congress that was pretty scathing about where things were as far as safety of pediatric devices. And um, the Institute of Medicine made a lot of recommendations about how to fix that. And a lot of these are incorporated in the bill now. For those of you that are just joining us, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg, and my guest today is Dr. John Abramson. We are discussing regulations of medical devices. So the IOM was the initial organization pushing for better supervision of pediatric devices? Absolutely. They, in fact, joined with the American Academy of Pediatrics. So the Institute of Medicine, the American Academy of Pediatrics used the Institute of Medicine's report to help devise this legislation around safety. But then the American Academy of Pediatrics took it further to then make sure that when devices were needed for children, they would go through the FDA process that would approve them appropriately and also try to incentivize manufacturers to make these pediatric devices. Now, in the OIG report, it stated that the FDA does not maintain any clinical trial registry or in any IRB registry, and therefore they're unable to identify all ongoing trials and unable to identify all IRBs. Is this part of the Pediatric Act, too, that they're going to just sort of fly by the seat of their pants? No, I think that's one of the things that's going to be corrected, in fact. It was interesting. There was a pediatrician named Barry Rumack who, and this is maybe now almost 10 years ago, who tried to go, who took a sabbatical and went to the FDA, trying to look at some safety issues around devices and actually found basically that, that he couldn't even get the information he needed to decide if a device was safe or not. And the other point they made was that the FDA inspected only 1% of clinical trial sites during the fiscal years 2000 to 2005. Doesn't that get you a little nervous? It does, and I'm not trying to be the defender of the FDA, but one of the problems the FDA had was inadequate funding. And the FDA would tell you many, many times they didn't have enough staff to go do more of these. And so some of the other components of the bill, there was a bill that related to reapproving the FDA, gave the FDA additional monies to help them beef up their staff and, and accomplish some of these things. Funding is always a big issue. How much has been allocated for the current Pediatric Device Act? Most of the legislation around the Device Act is not necessarily to increase funding, 
but more to incentivize companies. But there was $6 million approved for each fiscal year through 2008 to 2012 to form these two consortia where, as I said, you know, various physicians could get together with engineers and businessmen and try to create new devices. And then those devices, if they work well, will actually help support the income coming from the devices. Some of the money will go back into supporting these two consortia. It's hoped that we won't need every year to get $6 million, that eventually this will become a self-supporting mechanism for creating new pediatric devices. Do you have any kind of sense that some of the major corporations in medical device making, you know, could be Abbott, could be Siemens, General Electric, that any of them have expressed real interest in this program, joining the consortia? Interesting enough, unlike drug companies where there are only, you know, maybe a dozen major drug companies that make drugs, there are thousands of companies that make devices, some of them relatively small, some of them very large. And initially, some of the large companies were not in favor of this, but a lot of the small companies were. And eventually, almost all of these companies came on board to supporting this legislation. It seems like is a win-win situation. I wonder why they were hesitant to join. Well, I think they were worried about increased regulation. I think in the end, they saw that you know, the writing was on the wall. The, the Congress wasn't going to tolerate the current situation and that potentially there were enough carrots in this. You know, it's the carrot and stick approach, I guess. But there were enough carrots in this that it might be a win-win situation for everyone. It certainly is going to be a win situation for children. Could you talk a little bit more about the clause in terms of the humanitarian device exemption, what specifically could be exempted and how the companies can work to help children more through this process? This humanitarian device exemption allows profits of devices approved under the humanitarian device exemption component of this law, and that this is specifically designed to meet the pediatric needs. But can they sort of bypass the initial FDA approval, which is sort of the problem NewMed got into? It's less stringent. In other words, it's very hard to say you have to go test 10,000 children when there's only uh, 1,000 children with the disease. So it gives them a lot more leeway in in creating the devices, but it does make them follow the safety of the devices. What were the most frustrating obstacles you had to overcome in this process to get the legislation passed, or did it just sail smoothly? It was interesting in that it was being tied with renewal of the FDA itself. It was being tied with the renewal of the Best Pharmaceuticals Act in children, which basically tried to do the same thing for drugs, but had done it about, I think, five, six years ago. And that law had been very successful. It caused changes in the labeling of well over 100 drugs for children. So it made companies study these drugs in children and change how you might dose it or for what indication you might use it. A lot of it was based off that. But in trying to get the device law passed, there was a lot of back and forth in Congress about the other laws that were part of this whole package. And we had to sort of work our way through all of that to get this device law passed, but we were successful to do it. In fact, the Senate passed at 92 to 0. That's impressive. And I think the House was 430 to 8 or something like that. So in the end, we made our case successfully. The FDA is about to review cold and cough medicines in children, so if I could ask you to put your other hat on for a moment. Those drugs obviously weren't tested very much. Where do you think we should go in that direction? So any new drug that's made has to be tested in children. Unless they want it, you know, it doesn't have a use in children. Or two, they can make the case to the FDA that, for instance, they can't create a liquid formula of that particular drug. So the problem isn't so much anymore going forward with drugs. It's all the drugs that have already been approved 
and trying to get some of them studied. And each year now, the NIH and the FDA work with the pediatric advisory group to pick some of the drugs that are older, but we feel like we need more information on, and try to get those drugs studied. And a number of drugs have been studied just that way with the labeling changes. And I was on that for a couple of years, but I don't know where they are in the last few years and whether they're going to look at cough medicine. So I, I really yeah, they're supposed to make that. a decision in about two weeks. Basically, the current position is no cold cough medicines in children under the age of two, and they're looking at the two to six. That's interesting. I'd like to thank Dr. John Abramson, who has been our guest, and we've been discussing how to ensure that medical devices are safe for children. I'm Dr. Bill Rutenberg. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions. Please visit us at ReachMD.com and explore our new on-demand and podcast features, which give you access to our entire program library. Thanks for listening. I wish you good day and good health.